The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Welcome to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCoon. I serve as pastor of Zion Church. We're a congregation of believers who trust in the simple message of God's sovereign grace, where families come together to worship God in spirit and in truth through the simplicity of preaching, praying, and singing. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. If you live in the Gordo area or if you are visiting in the area, please join us for worship. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on the first and third Wednesday evenings at 630 p.m. If you've been joining us for the past few sermons, you know that we've been looking at the issue of the divine preservation of the scriptures. We've already seen that God has divinely inspired his word, but we've learned that if he didn't also divinely preserve that word, it doesn't help us too much. If we can't be confident that the word of God we have today is indeed the divinely inspired word of God that has been divinely preserved by God, then we're not much better off than if we just use man's opinions. In examining the issue of divine preservation, we've seen that it's important what manuscripts were used, what methodology was employed, and what the motives of the translators were. Specifically, we've been looking at the authorized King James Version versus all other modern translations. In the last couple of messages, we looked at the manuscripts that were used, and we saw that the manuscript used by the King James translators was far superior to that of all other modern translations. Today, we take a look at the methodology employed by the King James translators versus the modern translations, and we also look at the motives of the King James translators versus the motives of all other modern translators. In the end, we're going to see that the authorized King James Version of the Scriptures is far superior to all the modern translations in every aspect, and indeed is the divinely preserved Word of God in English. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit.
This morning, I want to go back to a subject that we've been on. I want us to turn to Psalm, the 12th chapter, to take our text in the 6th verse and the 7th verse. In Psalm chapter 12 and verses 6 and 7, we read this, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, we've already started down this path of talking about the divine preservation of the Holy Scriptures. We've seen from Scripture itself that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, it is actually, that Greek word there literally means breathed out by God. But we asked the question last time we were together, what good would it do us if the Scriptures were divinely inspired but not divinely preserved? It wouldn't help us a whole lot to know that God had inspired a word, but we don't have it today, or we can't have confidence in the word that we have. So last time, I'm not going to review much because I don't have time. <laughs> I want to try to finish this up this morning. But last time, last Sunday morning, we talked about the issue of divine preservation of the scriptures in general. Can we rely in general on what we have? And we saw that we can. And I won't revisit all that. You go, you go back, and if you want to hear that again, or if you weren't here and, 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 and didn't hear it the first time, go to our podcast. I'll have that up uh, this week. Uh, we're, we'll have at least those sermons from last weekend, last Sunday, up on the podcast. But suffice it to say that we saw that there is so much evidence. Now, we don't... Understand, we don't have to have the historical record in order to believe what the Word of God says. The Word of God itself talks about the fact that it was divinely preserved. We saw that Paul and Peter and we saw that Jesus himself believed that his words, not just in general some ideas from his teaching, but his very words would be preserved. Again, I say go back and listen to that message. We, we talked about several scriptures that show that. And then we went to the historical record. We don't have to have it, the historical record. But the beauty of it is, is that the historical record does support the Word of God. That's what's amazing about it, is that if you go look at the historical record, you'll see that everything the scripture says about preservation is supported by the fact that we have all these manuscripts and all these uh, ancient manuscripts and copies of ancient manuscripts that, uh, that support divine preservation. And then last Sunday night, we began to talk about the second question, which is which Bible, which translation in the English version is the one that we can rely on the most? And we began to see that the King James translation is the one that we can have the most confidence in because of several factors. First of all, we looked last Sunday night at the manuscripts. Again, I don't want to review it uh, in depth because I don't have time, but just understand there's basically two lines of manuscripts that have been passed down through the centuries. The Textus Receptus or the Antioch or the Byzantine line, they're all related there and come into that Textus Receptus line. That's the manuscript that was relied upon all the way down for centuries up until the 1800s, up into the 1800s. And then in the 1800s, there began to be reliance upon what's called the Alexandrian line of texts. The Alexandrian manuscripts were those that uh, originated, as it, as it sounds like, in Alexandria, Egypt. And they were, uh, uh, there was a lot of Gnostic 
influence in, in those manuscripts, but uh, they're the manuscripts that Constantine chose for the Greek text in, the three, in 331 AD, and he and Eusebius and some others that, that are the, the foundations of the Roman Catholic Church, they chose that line to be their Bible, their manuscripts, and ultimately the Vulgate Latin translation of the Bible that's relied upon even today by the Roman Catholic Church came of that line. And then we saw in 1844, a man named von Tischendorf found a codex. A codex is just a bound volume of, of the papyrus and other paper and vellum materials that had the, the Greek New Testament on it. They found it in, in a monastery in, uh, at the foot of the Sinai Mountain in a wastebasket. <laughs> they found 43 sheets of it in a wastebasket that they were using to start fires with and eventually went back and found the entire uh, manuscript, which is called the Codex Sinaiticus. And that Codex Sinaiticus, according to historians, dates back to about the 4th century A.D. And there's another one called the Codex Vaticanus, which was kept in the uh, Vatican, as it sounds like, in the Vatican over there in Rome. It was found in the 1500s, and it also dates back to around those same times. In fact, um, I don't know if I mentioned it last time or not, but those two codexes, those two manuscripts of the scripture, uh, many scholars think they are two of the 50 that were ordered by Constantine back in 331. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but they date back into that time. And we saw last time that one of the arguments in favor of that Alexandrian line of text is that, well, those manuscripts are, are more complete and they're older, okay? But you remember what we said about that? You remember, you remember there being, there's three types of of writings. There's three types of material that the Greek New Testament was written on. There was papyrus, which is basically paper, and there was vellum, which is animal skins, and then there was uh, these codexes that bound up some of the papyrus or vellum and kept them preserved in a book-like form. And we talked about what happens to paper when you use it, what happens to pap papyrus particularly, because it's a lot more, it's a lot less um, durable than paper. It gets worn, up, worn out, right? <laughs> it gets worn out. The more you copy it, and those old scribes and those old scholars and Lucian of Antioch and some others like that that we talked about, the Waldensian line of text, they began to copy them, and they began to copy them, and those old originals got worn out. And remember, God never promised to preserve the original manuscripts. He never said, oh, the inspired word is only what the Apostle John or the Apostle Paul wrote down. He never promised to preserve those original manuscripts. He did promise to preserve his words. He promised to divine, and I believe he divinely, providentially did that. So we, we ended up seeing the problems with the Alexandrian line of manuscripts, which is the basis of all modern translations, and the reliability of the Old Textus Receptus, which is the basis of the King James Version of the Bible. We talked about how that manuscripts are important, and today... I don't want to rehash all of that because I think we saw that last Sunday night. Today, though, I want to turn to the next important portion of this study, which is the methodology that was employed by the translators. That's also important. We, you remember we said the manuscripts, the methodology, and the motives are what you need to look at in determining which version we can rely on. So let's talk about the methodology this morning. It's important to know how the translators operated and what 
what the guidelines were that they followed. It's important to know how many there were. It's important to know their backgrounds. It's important to know safeguards and reliability checks. You know, quality assurance today is a big deal, right? It was a big deal back then. So let's talk about first the methodology of the King James translators. Let me just say this again. Pray for me. I don't want this to just be a history lesson. I think it's important, though, that we see this and that we know these facts. So pray that the Lord will help me get through this without it just be. I know it's dry. I get it. It's a lot of dates and it's a lot of history. But let's, I pray that the Lord will open our minds and we'll be able to wrap our minds and hearts around this. The methodology of the King James translators. First of all, we need to understand that the King James Bible was created, it was produced in an era when classical scholarship was at its height in England. It's never been that high since. Greek, Latin, Hebrew, all were studied and mastered by many scholars. And it was also at a time, in an era when the English language was at its height. See, this is the time of Shakespeare. This is the time of John Donne. This is the time of Sir Francis Bacon. This is the time, this is the time of, uh, of Ben Jonson and all those poets that if you had to suffer through English literature in college or high school, you, you were going to have heard of these men and, that wrote all these, these, uh, these high works of English prose. And it was in this setting that King James I of England brought together 54 scholars now remember in the 1500s, the English church had also participated in the Reformation and it had broken away from the Catholic church. It did so for a different reason. Luther and Calvin and those did it for doctrinal reasons. King Henry VIII did it because he wanted to divorce his wife <laughs> and marry somebody else. So, so whatever the reason was, though, uh, you know, the Lord can make the wrath of man to praise him. <laughs> so even though he did it for wrong reasons, they broke away and the Anglican church was formed. And it was in this setting that King James I brought together these scholars. They were a fair mix of both Puritans and Anglicans. And only 47 of these scholars, according to history, actually ended up working on the King James Version. But they worked on it from 1604 to 1610. What happened was, in their, we're talking about their methodology, these 47 scholars divided up into six teams. Two teams working in Oxford, two teams working in Cambridge, and two teams working in Westminster. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, which pulls together a lot of the studies that it validates a lot of the studies that I, I did this past week or two. The Encyclopedia Britannica says this in its article on the King James Bible. An elaborate set of rules was contrived to curb individual proclivities and to ensure the translation's scholarly and nonpartisan character. For example, in the process of translating, every portion of Scripture was subjected to review, peer review, among these scholars at least 14 times. At least 14 times, at least 14 sets of eyes uh, landed on each verse, each word of each verse of Scripture. And these translators also used some of the older English translations. In fact, I can't remember if it was the Wycliffe Bible or the Tyndale Bible, which had been produced in the 13 and 14 and 1500s. But one of those Bibles is 80% identical with the King James. The King James went back to these old saints that were trying to 
bring the Bible in English to the English-speaking people. You know, you may recall that for centuries, the Bible was only allowed to be produced in Latin. It was only officially allowed for the priests and those who knew Latin to know it. But it's important, is it not, that you and I have access to the Bible in our own language. You know, how else could the Bereans be more noble by searching the scriptures daily to see if the things that was being preached to them were true. You know, I don't want me to be the only one with a Bible in this church. I need you. I need all of you to have your own Bible. I need you to listen to what I'm preaching. I need you to test it by the scriptures. But back in the day, only the priests had it. And they could pretty much tell you whatever they wanted to tell you, okay? Well, here, a man named Tyndale and a man named Wycliffe, Wycliffe was the first one, they created uh, their own English translations and they both died because of it. Both died. In fact, Tyndale, who was maybe less than 100 years before the King James Bible, as he was being burned at the stake, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And I believe that's what the Lord did right here in 1604. So these translators used older English translations that had been based upon that Textus Receptus manuscript. And I want to just quote what the Encyclopedia Britannica says again uh, about the King James Bible in their article on the King James Bible. The new version was more faithful to the original languages of the Bible and more scholarly than any of its predecessors. The impact of the original Hebrew upon the revisers was so pronounced that they seemed to have made a conscious effort to imitate its rhythm and style in their translation of the Hebrew scriptures. The literary style of the English New Testament actually turned out to be superior to that of its Greek original. Now, whether you agree with all of that or not, I'll tell you that there's no doubt that the King James Bible was one of the heights of English prose for centuries. In fact, it's still viewed that way today. So, so the methodology, let's just kind of sum it up. It was an open and a visible process. It was scholarly. It was meticulous. And we're going to talk about the backgrounds of some of those scholars that came together in a few minutes. Six groups of the finest Greek and Hebrew scholars of that day assembled in those three places. They were overseen by the head of the Anglican church, they were both Anglican and Puritan, 14 different reviews of each of the 1,189 chapters of every book of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the methodology employed by the King James Version. So let's talk about the methodology of the modern translations. First of all, go back to 1881, Westcott and Hort. They were the two men who took the Codex Sinaiticus, found in St. Catherine's Monastery, and decided to start working on a new Greek manuscript. They began to take those, that manuscript and the Codex Vaticanus and some others, and they began to put them together, and they worked alone and in secret for about 30 years. There was no open, visible process. There was no peer review of, by scholars. Um, there's a man named uh, Doug Kudelek. That I, he, there's a book entitled Westcott and Hort versus Texas, Textus Receptus, which is superior. Um, 
Now, he did not believe, this man who wrote this, what I'm about to quote you, did not believe in the superiority of the Textus Receptus Greek manuscript over Westcott and Hort's Greek manuscript. In fact, he rejected both of them, but he made some important observations regarding the Textus Receptus and how Westcott and Hort approached it. This is what he says. He first points out that the Westcott and Hort Greek Bible deliberately and substantially departed from the Textus Receptus based on these new manuscripts. So there's no doubt there's a difference in the Greek manuscripts, the old one versus this new one that they found. And he says the two most famous attempts at restoring the original text of the New Testament are the Textus Receptus, dating from the Reformation and post-Reformation era, and the Greek text of B.F. Westcott and F.J.A. Hort first published in 1881. These two texts were based on differing collections of manuscripts following different textual principles at different stages in the ongoing process of the discovery and evaluation of surviving New Testament manuscripts and not surprisingly with often differing results. I quote that to point out that there was a marked difference between the Textus Receptus Greek manuscript and the new one that was come up with by Westcott and Hort. He goes on to point out some defects in Westcott and Hort's uh, manuscript that are generally recognized, he said, particularly its excessive reliance on manuscript B, which is the Codex Vaticanus that was found in the Vatican, and to a lesser extent, Aleph, which is the Codex Sinaiticus that was found in 1844 there in St. Catherine's Monastery. Hort declared the combined testimony of these two manuscripts to be to all but guarantee that a reading was original. In other words, they completely, pretty much completely relied on those two codexes. And this is what he says about that. He says, all scholars today recognize this as being an extreme and unwarranted point of view. And my point about that is this. This is a man who doesn't venerate the Textus Receptus or Westcott and Hort, and he's pointing out the problems with that 1881 manuscript. Here's my point. The King James methodology was open. It was employed by 47 of the best scholars of the day. It was subject to peer review. Westcott and Hort, who came up with a new Greek manuscript, a new Greek Bible, worked on it in secret for 30 years with no review. And all universally today say they had some problems in the way they approached it. The methodologies, I believe, clearly support the King James Bible over this other manuscript. So let's talk about the motives. Let's talk about the motives. Okay, that's important. If I were to sit down and write my own autobiography, okay, you would have to question, you know, when you start reading in my autobiography about what a great guy I am and how I hardly ever did anything wrong, you would have to say, well, you know, he had a motive. <laughs> he had a motive. He's, he, he, you, I'm not sure we can rely on what Brother Chris says about himself, you know. And by the way, one of the reasons that I, I love the Scripture is the Scripture is honest about, you know, if I had been King David, I wouldn't have said one thing about Bathsheba. <laughs> I'd have hidden that deep down in some other, I'd, I'd have burned those, those sheets. But the Bible tells us about all of these characters of the scripture, warts and all, as we would say today. So the, the motives of the translators. Well, first of all, let me just say this about the King James uh, translation. King James I had no real role in the translation. 
he, 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 was a, he was Presbyterian by background. He was tutored by Presbyterians. He came from Scotland. And he professed his support for Puritanism while he was on the Scottish throne. He was definitely anti-Catholic, but he had no real role in the translation other than appointing these Anglican and Puritans uh, to the panel to translate the versions. So let's talk about their motives. There were 47 classical scholars under the supervision of the head of the Anglican Church. And I printed this out just so I could, I could go through a, little, a few of the items on it. Uh, this is a... Uh, um, a brief summary of the translators and their backgrounds. So, so what happened was there was a conference convened by King James in 1603, and John Reynolds, who was the head of the Puritan Church in England, proposed a new English translation of the scriptures that would unite the churches and the people of England. His goal was one universal authority or standard for all English-speaking Christians. This man was a preacher who was the uh, professed or recognized head of the, of the Puritan church. So they forwarded the names of these men, uh, these 54 men to the king, and he approved the list of names. And, and now I want you to notice what they did. I, 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 this touches me when I read it. For the next three years, from 1604 to 1607, they set, it says the next three years were set aside by the select group of translators for time and private research, prayer, fasting, and preparation for the task that lay ahead. They didn't just jump right in there. They began to prepare themselves. They, they began to pray about it. They began to fast. They, they were studying and they were doing research. And finally, it says, the company met together in 1607 to commence their work. And as I've told you already, they divided themselves into the six six committees. The conditions for the translation of this kind of project were ideal in the early 17th century in England. The translators operated with a blessing and the financial aid of the king himself. All of the scholarship and resources of Cambridge University, Oxford University, and Westminster Abbey were at the translator's disposal. They extended an invitation to all principal learned men of the kingdom to participate as consultants or advisors. And, and of course, I've already told you, historians concur that this era of the English language is the era where it had ripened to its fullest perfection. And the study of Greek and Oriental languages and rabbinical lore had been carried to a greater extent than ever before since. Now, here's what I wanted to get to about the translators. Of the 54 translators, and I'm just going to read this. Of the 54 translators, four were college presidents, six were bishops, Five were deans, 30 held PhDs, 39 held master's degrees, there were 41 university professors, 13 were masters of the Hebrew language, 10 had mastered Greek. Every man involved in the King James translation believed in the verbal inspiration of the scriptures, all believed in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and all were men of prayer. Many were not only biblical scholars and master linguists, but also God-called, spirit-filled preachers. And yet, I love this, the translators considered themselves poor instruments to make God's holy truth to be yet more and more known unto the people. Some of the statements of the translators themselves kind of reveal their motives. They spoke of the scriptures as, quote, that inestimable treasure which excelleth all the riches of the earth. They acknowledge the Bible as, quote, so full and so perfect. Quote, a fountain of pure water springing up into everlasting life. 
They believed the original scriptures were from heaven, not earth. The author being God, not men. The penmen, such as were sanctified from the womb and endued with a principal portion of God's spirit. They referred to the Bible as God's word, God's truth, God's testimony, the word of salvation. Bottom line, these translators believed that what they had done over the seven years of the, their lives, that they had, do, they had dedicated to translating the King James Bible, was the very word of God itself. They believed that they did, and that was their goal, that was their motive. They met with pure motivation, spurred on by the desire to have accurate, an accurate Bible in English. I believe these are men we can trust. All right, let's look at the motives of modern translations, modern translators. Westcott and Hort, first of all. You remember what I told you in 1881? Remember, remember that, that Codex Sinaiticus, that Greek manuscript of the Bible that had been discarded for many years, was found in 1844 by a man named von Tischendorf. And in 1881, after having spent 30 years, Westcott and Hort produced a new Greek New Testament. Brooke Foss Westcott was born in 1825 in England. Fenton J.A. Hort was born in 1828 in Dublin, Ireland. Both served as professors at Cambridge. Both were ordained Anglican ministers. As we have already seen, when they started the project, they were anti-Textus Receptus, and they were against the manuscript that had been used by the King James translators. They didn't go into it neutral. They went into it with a bias against them. Now, let's look at their beliefs. First of all, you may recall that in the mid-1800s, a man named Charles Darwin came up with a book called The Descent of Man and a theory that we know today as the theory of evolution. It was like a bomb going off in the, in the educational institutions of the world. Darwinism today has dominated most of our higher uh, institutions of higher learning. In fact, it's dominating our high schools and our elementary schools. Hort, by his writings, clearly believed in this new theory of evolution. He wrote to a man named John Ellerton in 1860, the book which has most engaged me is Darwin. Whatever may be thought of it, it is a book that one is proud to be contemporary with. My feeling is strong that the theory, the theories in that book, the theory is unanswerable. If so, it opens up a new period. This man was a believer in what Darwin put out there. And he was right about this. He might have been a prophet, Brother Mackey, because it did open up a new period. What about Westcott? Well, Westcott did not believe in the literal interpretation of the creation account of Genesis. He wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury on Old Testament criticism in 1890, and this is what he said, No one now, I suppose, holds that the first three chapters of Genesis, for example, give a literal history. I can never understand how anyone reading them with open eyes could think they did. So here we have Hort, who is a subscriber to the beliefs of Darwin on evolution, and you've got Westcott, who doesn't believe that the Genesis account of creation is literal. He believes it's somehow allegorical or symbolic. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates.
If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's Z-I-O-N-P-B-C-1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismccool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.